Uh, thank you so much for being with us. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And, and you've heard it said already many times, but I want to just say again, if you're here today and you, you kind of think all of this is really weird and really strange, and, and maybe uh, some people just believe in fairy tales, and Jesus isn't really alive, but it makes us feel good on the inside, and, and maybe that's where you're at, or maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for years and years and years, or maybe you haven't been in church in a while. Wherever you are today, and w- whatever you brought in with you today, and whatever background that you have, and however you identify yourself, we're just glad that you're here, and there's nothing that's off limits. There's no doubt. There's no skepticism. There's, there's not uh, any sort of question that we're fearful of. Uh, even though we don't have all the answers, we're committed to really walking with you and so glad that you're with us today to celebrate the resurrection. I'm, I'm literally standing in front of a sea of pastels right now. It's just, it's beautiful. One time a year that this happens. Uh, so hopefully today's gonna be a good day for you. You got some ham in the smoker to eat later, which is a really strange way to celebrate a Jewish man who rose from the dead, but we're doing it, Right. And you got the eggs ready. So today's gonna be a party. We're really, really excited. So uh, I I wanna jump in. If you have a Bible, then go ahead and grab it and go to Luke 24. Luke 24 is where we're gonna be. If you don't have a Bible, don't stress out. I have one and I'm gonna read from that. Uh, And then we have the words up on the screens. So you don't need to stress about that. But I wanna pray for us and then we're gonna jump in and eventually get to Luke 24. It'll take us a little bit, but we'll we'll get to Luke 24, I promise. So let, let me pray. God, thank you for the grace that is the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that we're not praying right now to a a set of bones and a tomb in Israel, but we're praying to the risen Savior, the King over every king. And Jesus, we say today, thank you for coming after people like us. Thank you for loving people that really didn't deserve it. And thank you for wanting to be near people that, that really didn't wanna be near you. Thank you for your loving pursuit of us. And today I pray for my friends in the room that don't know much about you or think they know a lot about you and they're rejecting you. I pray that you would move and work and help them experience your loving pursuit of them. God, we pray today that you would take people that are in darkness and lost and bring them into your light. I pray these things in your name, Jesus, amen. I wanna tell you a few stories about some of my friends. Clark is a friend of mine that grew up in church and from an early age was really committed to the faith. He was really serious about Christianity and his family was really religious and he was really, really good about kind of maintaining that growing up. Uh, He had a really profound spiritual experience in high school that led him to believe that Clark was being called to the ministry. And so he began to pursue what would it look like to go to seminary? And so he started with college, but in college he started to have these internal doubts and skepticism about some of the claims of Christianity start to arise, and he did not know what to do about it. He didn't really know how to process this, so he didn't process it with his friends or family, but friends at college over time began to ask him questions, and he over time felt like he, he couldn't give any good answers to their questions. And so it happened at first slow, and then really quickly, Clark eventually just woke up one day and realized, I don't believe anymore. I don't believe And so he did something that shocked all of his friends and family. He kind of came out, right, as a skeptic, as as an agnostic and said, I just, I don't believe this stuff. And he left, he left the faith. He was about to head to seminary, but he walked away from Christianity altogether. And now where Clark is, is he, he, he does whatever he wants to do, whatever makes him feel good. So he sleeps with whatever girl he wants to sleep with or guy. He drinks as much as he wants to drink. He does all the things that he never was allowed to do that were bad growing up. And he's just pursuing this lifestyle, doing whatever he wants to do to experience some sort of pleasure, some sort of joy. Um, What's crazy about this is Clark said, 
at, at night when he's alone, and he tries not to be alone with his thoughts, but when he's alone with his thoughts at night or after a, a, a long night of partying when he has a hangover the next day, he'll wake up and he has this gnawing sense on the inside that something is off and something is missing, but he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't believe in Jesus anymore, but he's kind of putting this into words. Is this all there is to life is the question that he can't seem to shake. Is this it? Is this all there is? Another friend of mine, Olivia, she, uh, she didn't grow up in a religious context at all. In fact, she's pretty honest and open. If you ask her, she'll tell you that she thinks this whole idea of God and Christianity is just kind of nonsense. It's silly. She thinks that it's weak people that need a God to, to rely on as a crutch. Uh, Olivia grew up in a really loving family, but they were poor. They didn't have a lot of money. And she told me that when she was a kid, she used to daydream about growing up and being rich so she could buy all the things that her friends had that she wasn't able to get. And so she did. She, she was really intelligent, really driven, really smart. She grew up and, and she eventually graduated from college, excelled in school, and she landed a high-paying job at a, a new startup company. And she kind of quickly worked her way up the corporate ladder. Now Olivia makes all the money that she thought she needed to make. She has a really beautiful house. She's got a great car. She takes these exotic vacations just kind of whenever she wants. If you looked at her Instagram, you'd be blown away. She's going to all the places that we want to go, right? She eats at all the, the new restaurants that crop up across the city. But here's what she told me. She said, even though I'm finally making the money that I thought I needed to make, there's still something missing and I can't pinpoint what it is. I have this gnawing sense that there's more out there. I don't think it's Christianity. I don't think it's God, but there's gotta be more to this life. Last one, a buddy of mine, Jordan. Jordan uh, was real shy growing up. He struggled to make friends. He was really nice and really fun to be around if you knew him, but, but shy and awkward at first. And so a lot of people didn't take the time to get to know Jordan. And so he struggled with friends. He never really had any close friendships. In fact, he felt so isolated and alone growing up that he a few times thought about taking his own life just to end the pain. When, when he was nearing the end of high school, going into college, he started to realize that he was really artistic. He had a great gift uh, with art and photography specifically. And this kind of opened up a whole new world of success in his life. People started to like what he was posting and people started to buy his prints and all this stuff started happening. And, and now Jordan goes from being isolated and alone, no one knowing him, to he goes into a coffee shop or a restaurant and everybody there knows him. He's well-liked. People will buy him beers. They'll, they'll bring him over to the table. They want to be friends with him. He finally has the, this group of friends that he's always wanted. Those days of isolation, they're long gone. But here's what Jordan said. He said, is this really all there is? There's got to be more to this life out there. But, uh, I, I've changed the names of all of these stories, by the way. So if you're like, wow, I'm never going to tell that guy anything ever again because uh, it's going to land on it. I've changed the names to all of these stories, but these are real stories of real people that I know that are what I want to call haunted skeptics, right? They don't believe in Christianity. They don't believe in God, but they're haunted by the sense that maybe there's something more out there. They feel this thinness, this fragility in their, their lives that they can't explain. It's that they've got everything the world told them they needed for success and for meaning and depth and for joy. They've, they've got it all, but when they think about it and they try not to, there's this deep down, low-grade hum in the background that maybe there's something more out there. 
And if you, by the way, are sitting there and you kind of resonate with some of that, maybe your story is in the middle of one of those stories. If that's you, I just wanna take the next few minutes and I I wanna propose to you that maybe what you're missing is not really a thing at all, but maybe what you're missing is actually a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to take the next few minutes, if that sounds audacious, if that sounds insane, if that sounds ridiculous, I just want you to take the next few minutes and consider with me the possibility that maybe what your life is missing is actually who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now, some of you are like, what does Jesus have to do with that, right? I have this internal sense that there's something missing. What what does Jesus have to do with that? How could he possibly be the answer to the deepest longings of my soul? Well, I want to just kind of read to you something that he claimed about himself for you to wrestle with. And this comes at a really important time. He's, he's with one of his friends, Martha, right when her brother Lazarus passed away and he's processing something about himself. And he says these words. So this is like in the middle of brokenness, in the middle of tragedy, Jesus speaks these words, John eleven twenty five. He said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. If I could just boil down everything I want to tell you for just the next few moments, I wanna tell you this claim that Jesus made that he is the resurrection and the life. It's one of the most profound, incredible claims that Jesus has ever made. He is, for you and for me, the resurrection and the life. Now, that might not sound compelling to you at all. You might hear that and go, I don't understand how Jesus, being the resurrection and the life, so he says, would do anything for me today in my life. I mean, how does a guy dying on a cross 2,000 years ago actually change or affect me today? That message doesn't seem very Helpful, And I think a lot of us actually feel this, even those of you that grew up in church and would call yourself Christians, you don't actually see this this compelling significance of Jesus, even though you don't know how to say it, because a lot of us grew up with this very reductionistic story of what Christianity was all about and why Jesus came into the world. We kind of grew up with these half-truths that were, they're almost true, but but it's not the full picture of what Jesus is all about. Here's how my well-meaning Sunday school teacher uh, told this story to me. You don't want to go to hell when you die, do you? No. Well, how about heaven? Sweet. That's a way better option, right? Well, all you have to do is trust in Jesus, and when you die, you can go to heaven. Awesome. I'm in. Now, what do I do with the rest of my life? So a lot of us, that's how we heard the message of Christianity. It's your bad, God's good. He died on the cross, so when you die, you can go to be to heaven. You can go to be with him in heaven. And we're all kind of left wondering, what do we do now with our lives? And so what's happened to a lot of us is that we kind of we just get bored with Christianity because it was said to us, just just try not to screw up between now and then, right? Try not to do anything to make God upset. Just kind of you know live as best as you can, and when you die, you get to go to be with God in heaven, and that's it. And we're just kind of wondering, is this all there is? Uh, why does this actually matter for my life. I don't know what to do now in the day-to-day. So what happens is we get bored and we lapse back into sin. And then what over and over happens is we start to get more captivated by the vision of the good life that the world holds out to us. And we start to run after that more than we run after what Jesus offers, because we don't really know what Jesus is offering. A, A great writer, Dorothy Sayers, she said this. She said, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths 
of his life. And that's where many of us are today. It's like, I, I don't understand religion. It's like, it doesn't affect the majority of my life. Why is Jesus and the resurrection and him being the life a big deal? Well, here's, here's what we need. We need a recovery of the full story of Christianity. We need a recovery of really why Jesus came and what Jesus is all about because Jesus has always been about bringing life in the middle of death and decay and that has significance for you. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you are an atheist or religious, that has significance for you that Jesus came to bring life in the middle of death and decay. So here's what I wanna do. I just wanna quickly tell you three things, unpack three things for you to kind of give you a fuller picture of this story of Christianity and what Jesus is all about. And it starts in the very beginning. I want you to see life as God intended it to be. Life as God intended it to be. God's intention, without taking you there uh, in Genesis, from day one has always been to give you and I the life that we've longed for, this full, beautiful, rich life with right relationships with God and right relationships with other people. That's what God has always intended for you and I to experience. In fact, when some of you, when you think of heaven, uh, and you think of the earth, you might think of heaven as way, way, way out there somewhere, and that's where God lives, and the earth is here where we live. But in the beginning, it wasn't that way. It wasn't like heaven and earth were these two separate places. In Genesis, what we see happening is that God, the, the creator of all things, he actually creates the earth to be a place to dwell with humanity. It's like heaven and earth come together and God is gonna dwell with us to give us life, this life that you and I crave at the deepest level. The, the, the people of God in the Old Testament, they actually had a word for this. It was called shalom. And it's hard to understand what that word means because there's not a direct translation into English. But this word shalom basically meant just this full, beautiful, rich life. It was life as God meant it to be lived, where everything is right and everything is good and everything is aligned the way it's supposed to be. Tim Keller, he kind of tries to define this word this way. He says shalom means Complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. This, by the way, is what God created at the beginning. This is what we were supposed to be living inside of. This was supposed to be the human experience on planet Earth. And in the middle of the story, there are these two trees. And it's really bizarre and really weird, but there's these two trees. One of the trees is called the tree of life. The other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you, if you grew up in church or if it had any interaction with Christians, then you know about these trees. And here's the point of the story. Not that these are real trees that had real fruit. I mean, they may have been, they may not have been. It doesn't matter. The point of the story is that these two trees represent two ways to live inside of the world that God created. There's the tree of life. We can live a life of humility and trust in God's authority, knowing that life and beauty and good, they all come from God and they're defined by God. The, the tree of life, this is a life of reliance on God, submitting to his authority. Or you can go the other path, the other way, and you can live and take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is, this is representing uh, rejecting God's authority and defining what's good and evil for ourselves. This is a life of 
defiance. And so paint this picture. In the beginning, God wants to dwell with us and he wants to give us this full life. And there's these two trees. And all he's saying is, I want you to to take of this tree of life, trust me and obey me and just follow me. I, I want to give you this good and this rich and this beautiful life. But don't eat of this tree. Don't live this way. Don't reject me and start to define what is good and evil for yourselves. Don't live a life of defiance. This was life as God intended it to be. Here's the second thing I want you to see, the origin of death and decay. The origin of death and decay. We call this the fall. And and you know that that beautiful shalom style life that God intended us to experience, it didn't last long, did it? Just a matter of time, a short matter of time when Adam and Eve, they chose to reject God. And instead of, of, of submitting to his authority, they chose to define what was good and evil for themselves. And they, they stepped out of his authority and they lived the life that they wanted to live, started naming and calling what was right for themselves. And when they did this, the result was sin and death entered the world, sin and death. And when you hear death, you might just think of uh, dying. But what's fascinating about the story is when Adam and Eve sin, they don't just drop dead. So death is something more than just physically dying. It's like that beautiful life that God intended us to have. When sin entered the world, that went away. And now we have this new thing called death and all of his friends. There's all of this brokenness and, and corruption and decay that comes colliding into our world. I want to just ask you, what comes to mind when you think of sin? Maybe you have this idea in your head of these rules that God has kind of arbitrarily created, you know, and not basically to keep you from having any sort of fun. And he's designed all these laws. Don't do this and don't do this and don't smile and don't run in church and right. And that's kind of God is this cranky old man in heaven. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of sin. I, I want to kind of help you unpack maybe a fuller picture of why God is so against sin. And the first, I just want to throw this picture up there, this idea of shame, this idea of shame. Adam and Eve instantly knew that when they removed themselves from God's authority, instead of experiencing joy and pleasure, what it brought into their souls was this feeling, not just that they have done something bad, but at their core, they were bad. Have you ever felt shame before? It's not just a moment of I've done something wrong, it's I am wrong. Something's off, I'm not right. Shame entered the world. It's this severed relationship with God now where things are not okay with him and us. And we feel guilt and we feel shame and we feel cut off from him. These are the effects of the fall. But I wanna expand your vision even more of sin. It's not just shame. I wanna throw up another picture for you to look at. Um, When you think of sin, you should also think of this. This picture kind of reminds us that we live in a world where actually there is enough food to feed everybody, but because of greed and selfishness and a lack of, of, of trying hard, right? A lack of working and for the good of humanity, starvation exists in our world. Here's another one. When you think of sin, we're familiar with this image. This is more Oklahoma after the tornado in 2013, Right? Because of sin, it didn't just bring this severed relationship with God, but now there's this chaos that has entered our world. There's this brokenness. It's almost like the world that we live in is not right, right? A forest fire breaks out or a tornado hits or an earthquake happens or some tragic uh, natural event happens and we go, this is not right. That's not how it should be. And that's exactly right. It's a result of sin and brokenness and death. 
When you think of sin, you should think of this. This is a, a picture of racism. Because our relationship with God has now been severed and untethered, we don't know how to relate to each other. And so we start to isolate and homogenize and we start to look down on other people that are different or have a different color of skin. And, and, and this is still, by the way, as you know, very much alive in our day, even if it doesn't look like this today. Sin and brokenness, it's death. This is death entering our world. When you think of sin, think of this. This is a picture of the Florida shooting, Florida shooter, uh, standing on trial. We think about 17 people that he killed and we go, why, why did this happen, right? This happened because of death. Death has entered the world and all of his friends, it's chaos and it's brokenness. And then finally, one more picture and we could do this all day, but this, this reminds us of what's happening right now where people in positions of power and influence, they use their power to prey on the weak and to uh, sexually abuse those who are underneath them, causing damage. Regardless of what happens, they are pursuing their own sexual pleasure to the hurt and destruction of other people. Here's the point. We could go on and on and on, but God created a world of life and beauty and shalom. And we removed ourselves underneath that world and we've pursued sin. And what has resulted in our pursuit of sin is death and all of his friends have entered the world and it's chaos and it's brokenness. And there's not just this idea of guilt and shame between us and God, but there's this idea of corruption now in our world. And we're all kind of wander, want, longing, and could this earth and could my life be put back together. It leaves us in this frantic place. I don't know if you've noticed this in your own life. I've noticed this in mine, where I kind of get in this frantic place where I so miss what God created us to experience that I start to try to recreate it myself. Well, let me just read you this quote from J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings. He wrote some letters. This was a letter uh, to a friend. He said, we all long for Eden and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted its gentlest and most human is still soaked with the sense of exile. You know what you miss deep down, even if you don't have words for it? You miss Eden, the Garden of Eden, where God was giving life and we were underneath his authority. That's what you miss. When you go to the bar and get drink after drink after drink, you're missing God, right? When you sleep with whoever you wanna sleep with, you're missing God, when you have this ache in your soul and you try to fill it with money and stuff and possessions, you're missing God. And even if you don't know that, that's what you're wanting. It's something more than just the stuff. You miss this transcendent reality that you were made for more. And maybe you wouldn't say it like Tolkien, but maybe you could say it like Julian Barnes who said this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And so here's what you and I do. I don't know if you've noticed, but we attempt to recreate heaven on earth, but without Jesus, right? So we've got great cities and great coffee shops and beautiful restaurants and beautiful homes, and we recreate heaven on earth, but just without Jesus. And, and we've got great malls and, and great money, and we've got, we've got uh, Amazon, and we used to be like, wow, two-day shipping, and now we're like, oh, two-day shipping so lame. They've got same-day shipping, right? And, and it's like we've got everything at our fingertips that we could ever want, and we're just stuffing and stuffing and filling and filling and acquiring and acquiring, and it isn't working because what we really want is the kingdom, but without the king. But here's the reality. The kingdom is only good and beautiful and right if the king is there. Heaven is only heaven if the presence of God is there, right? A city is only a good city if the presence of God is in the city. We're trying to get all that God made for us. We just don't want God. We want the stuff. And it doesn't work that way because he 
is himself the life giver. He is himself the resurrection and the life. Now, here's what's crazy. Here's what's absolutely mind-blowing. God could have just left us out floating in the ocean of our own decisions and choices and sin and rebellion. He could have just let us, let us go and said, you know what, that's, that's your call. Do your thing. That's fine. I'm not going to bother myself with you. But here's the shock of the story of the Bible. Every time we run from God, every time he comes running after us. Every time we drift away, he comes quickly in hot pursuit of us, not to pour out judgment, not to pour out wrath, not to crush us, but to love us and put back right what we created and brought in this brokenness that we've started. In fact, it's so bizarre. If you read the Bible, one of the primary ways that Jesus refers to us is as lost. The religious people of Jesus' day referred to people as sinners. Jesus refers to people as the lost, lost sheep. He uses another story of the lost coin, the lost son, right? There's all these stories and what God is saying is, you were lost and I'm coming to find you. In fact, the very first question in the Bible that God ever asks, it's when Adam and Eve sin and God says, where are you? He's looking for them. He's pursuing, he's wanting. He's, he's, he's saying, I wanna be close. I want relationship. I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. And this is what God does. I, I want you to, this is the final thing I want you to see. It's not just the brokenness of sin and the origin of death and decay, but I want you to see that Jesus brings life in the middle of this death. Listen to how John starts off his gospel, which is kind of a biography about the life of Jesus. In John chapter one, he says this. He says, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And then look at this. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Listen to Jesus explain why he came. You ready? John 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Death and chaos and broken, no, eternal life. And he's not talking about something that happens when we die and float off to heaven. He's saying life now, eternal, full, that shalom style life. That's why I came, to give you that as a gift. Here's another one. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Uh, another one, I'm the way, I'm the truth and the life. And then Finally, he says this, I'm the resurrection and the life. Like this is the shocking thing that Jesus is saying. You brought death into the world. I came not to bring death to you. I came to bring you life and to fix the brokenness, not just with you and me, but that exists in our world. And how does God do it? How does Jesus do away with death? Well, here's the, the beautiful irony. Jesus does away with death and all of his friends by dying on a cross, and on the cross, he absorbs the corruption and the guilt and the shame of our sin. And Jesus, he takes it in our place and he actually dies not just to forgive us, but to make everything right, both with us and God and with the world. He forgives us of our corruption or of our guilt and he deals with the corruption that is in our world. And thankfully, you know the story, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose again from the dead. I'm just gonna read this story to you. So Luke 24, look at verse 36. And this, by the way, is right after the disciples have found the empty tomb and they're kind of scratching their heads. 
Where is Jesus? What's happened to Jesus? So look at this in verse uh, 36 of Luke 24. And as the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said these things, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? In other words, it's been a long three days. I'm starving, right? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Have you ever been the only one eating in a group of friends? Super awkward, right? So what's happening to Jesus right now. He's just sitting there eating his fish and they're all staring at him like, holy cow, he's alive. And then he goes on, verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And look, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Listen, if you're here today and you don't believe that the resurrection actually happened, you think it's a fairy tale that was made up, there is so much historical uh, explanation and pointers that this is the only viable explanation that Christianity ever got off the ground, that Jesus's mom and brothers worshiped him as God. And that by the time the year 300 AD rolled around, there were millions and millions and 34 million to be exact Christians that were saying Jesus is alive, willing to die for that claim right? There's so much that we could talk about. You can email us, we can get coffee, we can get a beer, we can process, but Jesus is alive. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm coming to an end. Let me read you this quote from a guy named N.T. Wright. He says, the resurrection declared that Jesus was not the ordinary sort of political king, a rebel leader that some had supposed he was the leader of a far larger, more radical revolution than anyone had ever supposed. Why does the resurrection matter? Because Jesus was inaugurating a whole new world, a new creation, a new way of being human. He was forging away into a new cosmos, a new era, a form of existence hinted at all along, but never before unveiled. Here it is, he was saying. This is the new creation that you've been waiting for. It is open for business come and join in. All those pictures and the thousands of pictures of brokenness that we didn't show, God entered human history, not to give death, but to bring life and to do away with death. You long for that at the core of who you are, that God would bring you life. And here's what I want to tell you today. God is actually inviting you into this new kingdom and into life, and it's by grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You don't have to get your addiction in order. You don't have to try hard. Wherever you are today, Jesus is, he's holding out life to you as a gift saying, do you want it? Here you go. You're in death. You're in sin. I want to bring you life, right? That's the story of the Bible. This is the story of Jesus and why it matters. Jesus is inviting you into three different postures, three different postures. The first one is a posture of repentance. You hear that word and it sounds maybe churchy, offensive, 
but it's a beautiful word. The Greek word is metanoia, and it essentially means to turn around. But it's more than just to turn around. Jesus is inviting you to see the world differently, not as you being the one that calls the decisions and says what's right and wrong and lives to your own ends, but he's inviting you to, to see the world in a different way, to, to submit yourself to him, to, to live with him in mind. Uh, th- this is what he's inviting you into, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil anymore, but now to, to take of the tree of life and eat. He's inviting you not just to repent, the second posture, he's inviting you to believe. Believe that Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a, a political revolutionary. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king. He is God and he's alive and he loves you, and he came for you. And then here's the third posture. Jesus is inviting you to follow him, right? Jesus says, come, follow me, be my disciple. That word disciple is not one that we throw out a lot in our culture today, but it just basically means be my apprentice, right? Come, come learn from me what it is to be human and relearn how to live in this world. So if you're here 